0: when I 've been preaching here at Weavertown the uh, last number of times I've been preaching from the book of First Peter, and this is the uh, third sermon now in our series. And uh, the last uh, time we ended at uh, verse five, and I am um, tremendously uh, impressed or uh, inspired as I study and prepare these sermons, um, just realizing the um, amount of theology and the uh, amazing teaching that's packed into these first uh, 12 verses especially, and we'll discover packed into the rest of the Scripture as well. Today, I'm calling the uh, message, Rejoicing in Trials. And uh, I'm going to be looking uh, at 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 9, and maybe especially, uh, uh, I should say, 3 to 12. I apologize for that uh, typo. Uh, 3 to 12. The um, yeah, focusing especially middle half of that, but also referencing some of the uh, points that are talked about in the earlier um, in the earlier uh, text as well. <clears throat> Rejoicing in trials. Now, there are certain words that when you see them together, you're like, hmm, it doesn't seem as if they fit. And there would be lots of examples of that. For example, airline food. Or you could say hospital food. Or political science. Doesn't seem as if the words should go together. Pretty ugly. Microsoft works. Express mail civil war and there would probably be many more there's two words that come together here in verses 6 and 7 and they're the words rejoicing and trials two words that don't seem to fit together they're in the same sentence rejoice trials is that even possible? Should those words even be together? We rejoice when trials are over. We rejoice, we're happy if we can avoid trials altogether. But the fact that Peter writes about these two ideas in the same breath, the same sentence, and he merges these two life experiences I think it's a vivid illustration that it is possible to rejoice when we're going through difficult times. And there's numerous other places in the Scriptures that bring those two ideas together. I find it very fascinating. I want you to notice how he begins this sentence in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season... If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Of course, the question is, in what shall we greatly rejoice? And this is where I think it's important to refer back to the previous uh, verses, verses that we preached about in the prior two or three sermons that I preached here. And... uh, I think it's talking about the fact that God has the power. We talked about that especially and looked at some of those verses in uh, verses two to five the last time I preached. And it's as if God has a lockbox. Everything is there. Everything is in the lockbox that's needed. If if things are not sufficient for us, it's not God's fault. It's ours. It's reserved. It's secure. It's unchanging. And that should cause us lots of rejoicing. Now, I want to look and examine our favorite subject this morning, trials. We hate trials, right? We dislike them. But I think we're also called to to love trials. We should love them because of what they produce in us. The potential that they bring out in us. We don't love it when we're going through them. But we love it when it's over. The pain discontinues. The lessons have been learned. And we're better for it. I have six characteristics that I want to point out to you about trials. Six characteristics of trials. The first of all, we'll notice in verse 6 that trials are diverse. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Some of the other translations will use the word multiple trials or various trials. These are trials that come in many forms. They're variegated, many-colored. The Greek word actually has the idea of a color chart. And um, in our Pantone chart of colors, according to Siri, there are 1,729 colors on the Pantone color chart. And as many colors as there are on that chart is the kinds of suffering that we can have all kinds of different trials, all kinds of different forms of suffering. We know through our lives that it seems that the trials come from different angles and from different things at different stages in our lives. They come in all shades and colors. Some are small, some are big, some are short, some are long, some very long. But Peter just sums this up by saying manifold or various trials. I think it is especially fascinating to to me as I studied this. I think it's the only other time that the Greek word that's used for manifold here is also used by Peter in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says that as each one has received a gift, That's how we're supposed to minister according to the manifold grace of God. I just think that is especially unique and interesting. There are manifold trials and there's manifold grace. That means that for all of the different shades and colors of trials, there is a color match. God has a color match. Manifold trials and manifold grace. Various trials, various shades of God's grace. Now, if I were to categorize various trials, we would say that there are physical trials. There are mental trials, emotional trials that we go through. And in the course of our lives, it's normal. It's not unusual for us to have um, various of these kinds of trials, perhaps all of them at some point or another in our lives. The Bible talks about all three of these kinds of trials. There's physical trials. There's cancer, strokes, heart attacks, birth defects, automobile accidents, and many other things. We suffer because we are human, because life has a way of coming at us in that way. In the Bible, People suffered. In the Old Testament, there were characters, chapters, whole chapters, and stories written about people who, had, who suffered because of diseases that they encountered in their lives, physical conditions. And some of these were some of the most godly people that you'll read about in the Bible. We know for sure that godliness, living lives that are pleasing to God, does not necessarily mean that there will not be physical trials. Jesus is our perfect example. He lived here on life, on earth, suffering many things. And I especially want to notice that in First Peter, when it talks about sufferings, it is usually in plural, not always, but many times. Temptations, manifold trials, it talks about. In the plural, suffering is in the plural. And that's how Jesus referred to his sufferings. Plural, and then there are emotional trials. One of the reasons that we like the Book of Psalms so much is because the writers of the Book of Psalms wrote it in musical uh, terms, I think mostly, and they wrote about the emotional side. They they spoke. These psalms speak to our emotions. For example, at one point, David writes about swimming in tears. I think it's in Psalm 26. That's an emotional trial. And I think that dedicated believers are sometimes susceptible to this. If you're a person who is a dedicated believer, somebody who has his nose to the grindstone, has a kind of work ethic that tries very hard, you are susceptible to this. You push it, and you push it. And you become susceptible to emotional weariness, emotional trials. You get exhausted. Elijah, for example, was this kind of person who worked very hard at what he did. And it was a lot compressed in a short amount of time. And he became, um, he became exhausted. And he struggled with emotional trials, depression. And then there are spiritual trials. I think we tend not to think about these very often, spiritual trials. Maybe I don't think about them as much as I should, but they are very real. Spiritual trials are trials that come as a result of our inclination towards sin, the sin in our own hearts, in our own lives, the practices that we engage in that lead us to guilt and lead us to wrestling with doubts, And we wrestle with expectations that we might have of God and feelings that God is not sufficient or good for what we need. We have unrealistic expectations for some reason and we feel that we've been let down. And that can lead to spiritual trials. So trials are diverse. There's various kinds of trials. And then secondly, we see that trials cause grief. The word in the King James Version here is the word heaviness. Ye are in heaviness because of manifold temptations. That word could also be very well translated made heavy or distressed. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. It's like you're walking around life. And you're carrying around you and all of the things that go with your life and your situation. And something comes along that lays an additional burden on you. Perhaps it's someone that comes along and lays an additional burden on you. And it's like you're weighed down. It's, it's a condition of heaviness that translates to grief. And grief, as we know, is such an amazing thing in our lives. There are so many things that come along with grief, and it is normal. It is a normal and healthy human expression for us to feel grief. Trials cause grief. Here's the third characteristic, and it takes us off guard a bit. Trials can be helpful Trials can be helpful. They can be good for us. And right now, I guess I'm sort of sounding like your mom, right? Here, take this medicine. It's horrible tasting, but it's good for you. Trials can be helpful. Wherein ye greatly rejoice... Here's the phrase, if need be. If need be. They're good for us. We need trials. It seems as if Peter is actually saying that there are times where God sees, he looks at us, he looks at our lives, and he says, That child of mine needs a trial. Some of the other passages in the scripture will indicate that this is a sign of God's love for us. If God would not love us, he would let us go and we would self-destruct. But God gives us what we need and his goodness to us comes in the form of a trial. If need be. That indicates that there are times where God knows that we need trials. In fact, it is the will of God that it is so. It is interesting that in our later sermons we're going to talk, continue to talk about suffering from time to time in this series. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, it says, 1 Peter 3, verse 17 says, For it is better if the will of God be so, if the will of God be so that ye suffer. The will of God in relation to suffering. In chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him. The will of God. When we suffer, we tend not to think about it that we are in the hand of a sovereign God who knows what we need. He knows us he knows our lives and he sees that we could benefit from a trial. God is in control. He's got you covered. He's got this thing in his hand. It is wired for his glory, which we'll see in a later uh, point here. If you're a parent, at some point in your parenting of your child you know what it's like, right? These children that are born to us are so special, so awesome to us But they got a mind of their own and as a parent, one of our responsibilities is to teach them to listen and sometimes as a parent if you're a good parent you're going to take actions that correct the course of that child. You're going to realize that your child is at a point where he or she needs a trial. And so you're going to bring a trial into that child's life because you know that the course of his behavior needs corrected. I think that also happens at boys' camps. I've heard from chiefs who become good at what they do, and they realize that certain dynamics in the group, or certain dynamics in a certain child, or or one of the boys in their group, needs a problem. And so they say, hmm, let's have a problem. And they realize that through the course of correcting, through the course of working through that problem, that benefits come as a result of that. Trials can be helpful. They correct us. I wanted to show you three verses in Psalm 119. There's a series of verses there in verse 67 and verse 71 and verse 75. I'm just going to read them. They speak for themselves. In Psalm 119, verse 67, it says... Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Trials are helpful because they correct us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, it talks about Paul's experience. And Paul is a, a man, a follower of Jesus Christ, who had at least four encounters with Jesus himself, according to his testimony. And he says that as a result of this, he had the temptation to be exalted above measure, is what the Bible says in that text. And so as a result of his t- Tendency or his temptation to be exalted above measure, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, and it was there. Sent, Paul realized that it was given in order to keep him humble. Trials help us because they humble us. There's a few things that can bring life into better perspective than some sort of trial. They humble us. Thirdly, they strengthen us. Here in the text, it uses the word patience. Patience. And that means endurance. They toughen us. They steal our souls. They steal our lives. They cause us to continue to the end and not give up. How many of us have taken schooling... And as, as a result of our schooling, there are tests. And I had to think about this, even Gordon, your last three years in residency. He, somebody, his superiors, ran him through some incredible hours, 90-some hours a week, I think, where he was craving 20-minute naps. But it's part of the process of stealing his will, stealing his mind to the fact that he's going to do whatever it takes to be a doctor. And today, he's passed those tests. He is now Dr. Gordon. It gives us endurance. Tests, temptations, trials, have a way of strengthening us. They're also needful because they equip us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, talks about the fact that when we are tested, God comforts us And we, in turn, are able to comfort those who need a similar kind of comfort. Trials equip us. They give us eyes for other people around us who are dealing with similar or the same kinds of things. A.B. Simpson wrote, You will not have any test of faith that will not fit you to be a blessing. I never had a trial but when I got out of the deep water, I found some poor pilgrim on the bank that I was able to help by that very experience that I had just had. So trials are averse. They cause us grief. They're grievous. Trials can be helpful. Fourthly, we see that trials reveal faith. Let me be more direct. They reveal what kind of faith we have they reveal what kind of faith we have. In verse 7, it says that the trial, many of the other translations use the word genuineness, the veracity of our faith. Being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What kind of faith we have is exposed by the trials we have. They reveal in whom we're trusting. They reveal in what we are trusting. Trials have a way of doing that to us. And I think it's especially interesting to note how that Peter here brings, into the I- brings us to the idea of a, um, an ironsmith or a person who works with precious metals. In this case, he uses the word gold. And what you have here is a um, jeweler who is looking and testing gold. Well, you know how you test gold? You heat it up. You put it in the fire. And I've told, I'm told, I've not ever, I've read, I, I think it's true, that one of the things, the right way to to tell whether gold is pure is to heat it up and heat it increasingly higher. And as the... Imperfections, as it bubbles, the imperfections come to the top and you skim off the top. And here's what I'm told, that a, a goldsmith knows when gold is pure, when he can see his reflection in the pot. You know how you can tell if your faith is real? heat it up. Skim off the imperfections. Allow the goldsmith to test you, God. And when he sees the image of Jesus Christ in your life, he knows that you have passed the test. I've seen people go through fiery trials. And I've seen those people completely wiped out. It just consumes them. But I've also watched other people go through fiery trials Incredible testings. And they come out at the other end, and they seem to be improved because of the trial that they've just gone through. That is a precious thing. Trials reveal faith, the genuineness of our faith. And then trials refine us. Ah, they refine us. I've already sort of referred to that. Your faith, more precious than gold that perisheth. He's making a clear analogy. Gold, one of the most precious metals that can be. But our faith, our faith in God, the veracity of our faith is much more precious, he says. Much more valuable than gold. Gold. And here's the end game, he says, that it might be found to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ when he comes. According to verse 7. God pours all of these experiences into our lives. And his purpose is to bring praise and honor and glory. So that when Jesus comes back, we're in his image. Warren Worsby says, if God puts you in the furnace, his eye is on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. Even Job, when he suffered that terrible, terrible losses, terrible skin condition that he had, he says that he knows the way that I take and he knows I'm tested. Listen to me. Job says, I will come forth Like gold. He's saying, I'm going to be refined. And when God looks into our lives and sees the reflection of Jesus Christ, he knows that we're ready. Romans 8, 29 says, We have been predestined to be in the image of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. Paul says that he worked and he worked hard for their sakes because he wanted to see Christ be formed in them. Trials refine us. The sixth thing that I see here is that trials are part of the redemption process. And I'm going to especially linger on this point. Throughout this book and throughout this text here in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 to 12 and throughout the bible redemption is described in terms of being past present and future and the text here does the same thing it describes as redemption as something that has taken place in the past it continues to happen in our time but it will really happen in the future. I'm not going to take the time, but there are numerous words that come up in passage here that are references to time. I want you to notice them. Look at them sometime on your own. References to time in the passage here. I want to dip into the one word in verse 8. And that says in verse 8, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now, there's the rest of time, now. Now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. The word now is very important. Though now you do not see him, is what he's saying. But what's unspoken there is that the fact that they weren't seeing him now, Indicated that there was going to be a time where they would see him. Even though he was invisible now, Jesus would become visible at a later time. 1 John chapter 3, it says, When he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That was also the great hope of Job. I've referred to him earlier. In spite of all his losses, of his things, the curses of his wife, the skin condition that completely tormented him. In Job 19, 25 and 26, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skinworms destroy my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I shall see for myself, mine eyes shall behold, he says, and not another, though my reins be consumed with me. So now you don't see him. But he goes on to say that now is the time to trust him. Now is the time to trust him. To believe in him. Ye believe in him. That's a word for trust. Now is the time to lean on God. Now is the time to, to trust him. To rest him. To lean in on his promises. And that's the part of hope. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago a Christian man who wrote one of our favorite hymns, We Sing It Is Well With My Soul. And the story is that he wrote that hymn after his wife's children had died. He had sent them ahead of him on a journey that he was taking, and they died as a result of a catastrophe at sea. And as as Horatio Spafford took the same route at a later time, He came to the spot in the ocean, in the sea, where the accident had happened, and he wrote these words, it is well with my soul. We remember especially the one verse, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's trust, that's believing, that's a personal relationship. So right here, right now, we have trust. We don't visibly see Jesus. We don't see him like Peter did. And these strangers that were scattered about Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and all those other places, had not seen Jesus the way Peter had. They had not walked with him like Peter had. They had not seen him. And he's commending them and saying that even though you you have not seen him, you love him. You trust him. You believe on him. <clears throat> Trials are part of the redemption process. In verse 1, he says, You guys, you readers, have been picked. God. He says, you are elect. In verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, he says, you have a living hope. You have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away. That's verse 4. And when this life is all over, it gets better in eternity. That's verse 5. And because all of this is true, he says, ye greatly rejoice. Rejoice. Because even though you're suffering in the present, the suffering is an evidence that God loves you and that you are being refined. Our present trials have the potential to bring praise and honor and glory to God, according to verse 7. And now in verse 8, he uses this term, and I hope it burns its way into my soul, into our souls. You rejoice with joy unspeakable, inexpressible. What does that mean? It simply means that there is a, a, a settledness, a, a faith in our hearts that can't be described. It's inexpressible. The Phillips translation, renders: he says, it brings in you a faith that words cannot express. And then verses 9 and 10, he says, the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. This salvation, this deliverance, salvation, such a comforting word, such an assuring word. And I noticed, uh, I was alert to it this morning, but um, maybe you weren't. Many of the songs that we sang, uh, Daniel sort of had the theme of, of deliverance and that sort of thing. But there's so many of the songs that we sing that have this theme of comfort and assurance. Salvation, what a great word. In whom, having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end or the goal of your faith, verse 9, and that is the salvation of your souls. That hasn't happened yet. That's still happening in the future. The redemption that we're waiting for is the, the time when our souls will be redeemed. The salvation of your souls. There's a part where it has happened, for sure. There's a part where it will continue to happen. But we won't see the full extent of it until we get to heaven. I'm thinking of verses 10 and 11 now. There is a series here which is just so fascinating to me. And I was debating, just making a whole sermon out of these several verses here, but I've decided to, to kind of skim through them here. The prophets. The prophets are referred to. The prophets saw this salvation. The prophets predicted this salvation. They didn't understand it. They were baffled by this salvation. God revealed this salvation to them. They spoke about it. They, they got to points in, the, in their writings where they were like, wait, what is this salvation that is being written about? See what he says there in verse 10? Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. They prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, he says. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. They had questions about this. You can read about it in the, as you read the prophets. Jeremiah, Habakkuk. Daniel and others got to spots where they were just floored. What is this salvation? What manner of time is this? What manner of salvation is this? What person, what time is this? When will this happen? Who am I writing about? When will these things happen? And it had to do in relation with the coming of the Messiah and the change that Jesus would bring into our lives. Jesus came to this earth and walked among men, as the Bible says. He gave his life. He died on the cross. And immediately after his death, his own disciples did not believe what was happening. They were bummed out that Jesus had died on the cross. And they were confused about the report that was going or swirling around that day that Jesus was seen by somebody and he was alive. And two of them started out toward Emmaus, two of these disciples, which was a nearby town. And as they're walking, Jesus comes alongside them, joins them in the walk. And they reveal that they are discouraged because of Jesus of Nazareth that had died a couple of days prior to that. And Jesus said, they didn't know it was Jesus. He hid himself from them. He said, Oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And it says that he went through the Old Testament and talked about the prophets and all the prophecies and showed them that it was exactly the way it was supposed to have happened. That would have been an interesting conversation to have been part of. What Peter is saying is that this salvation plan is not something that is surprising to God. He had it planned from the beginning. The prophets talked about it. The messengers or the the prophets themselves or other messengers ministered, it says, ministered of this uh, sufferings, uh, um, verse 12, uh, unto whom it was revealed, not unto themselves, but... Unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel. So there's the apostles predicted it. The preachers or the people that came across the prophets writing, the faithful messengers preached that. And hopefully I'm or we are part of that day, preaching the gospel. And then finally, I just want to dip in very briefly onto this aspect that the angels are looking into it. The Angels ponder this salvation. Look at the last part of verse twelve unto whom it 's revealed that not unto themselves that 's talking about the prophets yet, but on us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you that 's interim people and I also yeah, I just think it 's really neat to see the role of the Holy Spirit in this in this passage. The Holy Spirit sent down from from heaven. And here is what he says, which things the angels desire to look into. He's still talking about salvation. He's still talking about this redemption. And this word desire is a very strong word. It has the idea of the angels really, 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 really wanting to understand this salvation. They really, really, really want to see this salvation. They really, really, really desire this salvation. It's as if they're standing at the railing of heaven on their tiptoes looking at this salvation, looking down to earth and seeing this salvation, this redemption take place on earth. They're incredibly interested in salvation and how it works. Think about it. Who appeared to Mary to announce Jesus' birth? Angels. Who appeared to Joseph to confirm that he should stick with Mary and protect her? Angels. Who announced the birth of Jesus? Angels. Who was there throughout his suffering and his experience in Gethsemane? Angels. Who was there when at the tomb when he rose? Angels. Who was present when Jesus ascended to heaven? Again, angels. They're interested in the plan of God. They, they're interested. They're pondering this salvation, this redemption that God is bringing for all mankind. The angels watched as God gave his best, his only son, sent him to earth to live like a man among us. They're fascinated when people change as a result of an encounter with Jesus. The angels are fascinated when a drug addict becomes a pastor. They are fascinated when a criminal becomes a missionary. They are fascinated when an atheist becomes a born-again child of God. They ponder it. They marvel as a result of that. They rejoice over it. The Bible tells us in Luke 15, there is rejoicing among the angels when a person becomes repentant. And so it seems that in the classroom of the universe of God, God is the teacher The angels are the students, and the subject is salvation, and the illustration that God uses is his believers, the church. And the angels are looking down, and they're saying, man, that's incredible. That's marvelous. They ponder it. As I close, I'm just going to tell you something that I think. I think it's time to stop thinking about how big our storm is and to think about how big God is in relation to our storm. God is big. He is really, really, really big. He is in complete control of our lives. The trial that I'm in is big. It's grievous. But when I stop and think about it, I'm glad. Because I know that he's refining me. I know that he's correcting me. I know that he's strengthening me. I know that he's equipping me to be of help to someone else. And I know that my faithfulness in the trial that I'm in shows the great plan of redemption to the world around us, so that someday Jesus could be honored and praised and glorified. <clears throat> if you're able to kneel for prayer, I invite you to do that. <laughs> Lord, our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We ask your, your guidance in our lives. We are in contact with as a part of our humanity and a part of our existence. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be equipped, by it, to be refined, to be strengthened as a result of your working in our lives. you to be faithful to you in this coming days in the time and space that you have given to us and this particular spot that we're uh, in at this particular time again we ask your guns for your protection and blessing we pray through christ amen